Justify Prove to be right or reasonable Justification is at the heart of all legal and political argument But at a time when argument itself is slave to appearances it is time to bring back a culture of justification Justify a podcast on law and politics in India from the Vidhi Center for Legal Policy hosted by Orgo Sen Gupta Welcome to episode 7 of Justify thank you very much for joining us today This episode is called A Signal for WhatsApp, where we try to unearth what's the fuss about WhatsApp's change in its privacy policy and should you be moving to Signal. WhatsApp today is like the road in front of your house. 20 years ago, you would have walked that road to go to the market to a school or a friend's house. Today, you go on WhatsApp and do all of this and it doesn't stop here. 77% of Indian SMEs have said the online messaging platform has helped them connect with new customers. WhatsApp is used for governance in India with the Delhi Traffic Police most recently launching a helpline on WhatsApp for reporting traffic violations. Something I work on confidential government documents in the center and states are almost always sent and received on WhatsApp to benefit from end-to-end encryption. The wide variety of functions means that WhatsApp today is like a public utility. a private company but one that performs a critical public function so when whatsapp announced a change to its privacy policy it was a fact that it was a private corporation to that could do what it pleased and users would have to fall in line or use other services that came as quite a revelation downloads of signal and telegram surged in india alone according to some estimates signal had 2.3 million downloads and telegram 1.5 million Worldwide Signal had 8.8 million downloads in the week after the change was announced an increase of 3400%. But here's the interesting bit. WhatsApp still had 9.7 million downloads though that was a marginal decrease of 14%. This is after all a game of network effects because your friends are on WhatsApp you'll be on it in the first place. That's the same reason why you perhaps might migrate to Signal. So will Signal have the same problem as WhatsApp? even when it becomes big and where is user consent in the middle of all this if the consent is a take the service or leave it is it really meaningful to discuss these questions i'm privileged to have rahul mathan partner of tri legal who heads the tmt practice of the firm he works for a number of clients both indian and foreign including google facebook amazon and is the leading thinker on technology and law in india rahul welcome to justify Thanks Argo it's a pleasure to be here uh, thank you for inviting me so let's get started so the changes to the privacy policy of whatsapp i was reading those changes and i saw that whatsapp will collect greater amounts of data including time frequency and duration of interactions this is something that transactions on the internet typically involve chats with business accounts can be read by third parties to provide targeted advertisements again this is not different from anything that happens on the internet and data collected by whatsapp will be shared with facebook companies to design products and improve services that's precisely the reason why facebook bought whatsapp in the first place now none of these changes affect end to end encryption which is primarily what people are concerned about so why does the change in privacy policy seem so game changing i i don't know if i don't know if it's just the change in the privacy policy or the increased awareness among uh, not just people in india and you know you you know how that increased awareness has uh, has grown ever since we've had uh, the puttaswami judgment and you know you trace back to other and things like that 
But around the world, there has been a greater appreciation of the way in which data companies uh, work. You know, I, 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 and what you're saying is absolutely right, because these changes in and of themselves are not changes that are, um, you know, the kinds of changes that we haven't, uh, or the kinds of uh, practices that we haven't seen data companies do, uh, do before. I think it's probably uh, the moment uh, and I think I can't, I can't give any better explanation for that. Now, if you think about it, uh, this is not something that happened overnight. But when it did happen, uh, the, the time that the change was announced was also a time of tremendous turmoil uh, around the world. If you, if you would recall, that is the time when in and around, and I mean, my, the dates may be, may be blurring in my, in my head, but in and around the time that Twitter, Facebook, and everyone uh, pulled the accounts of the president of the United States of America probably the most aggressive action that any tech company has taken against the leader of the country in which they're uh, registered. And so there is this sort of um, zeitgeist that's going on at that point in time, which is, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, tech companies have tremendous power uh, and uh, they have, you know, it's, it's got to the point where they can actually take down a president. Uh, all of these things, I think, are rolling into one to come up with this, uh, the backlash uh, that occurred. Uh, but as you said, I, I can't see anything in, in the terms that, that off of themselves would force people uh, to migrate. You're right. You're, uh, that it obviously is that with great power comes great responsibility. So some of that is uh, quite patently true. Uh, but let's take WhatsApp with uh, and, and the type of function that it performs. Because it seems to me that the reason as to why there was uh, such concern, apart from the obvious fact that WhatsApp is powerful and Facebook is a very powerful tech company, is also the fact that WhatsApp is very critical to our lives. And that we do a lot of things on WhatsApp without, and, and it's almost as if, and, and I'll be very frank in saying it, that I can't imagine my life without WhatsApp today. Now, typically these kinds of companies historically in law have been seen as, as public utilities of some kind or the other. Now, companies which were affected with public interest, as Lord Hale said it for the first time, he used it to describe ports. Uh, and saying that ports just couldn't discriminate against which ships they wanted and which they didn't because public ports were performing a public service, though they were owned by private companies. Do you think something like that is going on here? No, absolutely. I, I think certainly that is um, very much part of this. And, and I think it's important to understand even the examples that you've given, they were all at one point in time private. Uh, so if you think about uh, railroads today, Right, railroads uh, we think of as a public utility, and I'm not talking about the the actual train that runs on it because you can privatize that, but the actual railroads. And that's not the history of railroads because in the U.S., railroads are actually built by private parties. If you think about, you know, iron and steel today, of course, iron and steel uh, is very much in in private hands. Uh, but they, uh, at the height of industrialization, assumed that that level of um, uh, infrastructure because it was so critical to everything that was going on into building things. So the point I'm trying to make is that all technologies, uh, all new industries uh, start out private and at some point in time become so uh, absolutely indispensable that they assume the character of infrastructure. We are in the middle of that transition. Right. So I would say that up until now, messaging, 
was perhaps not so important. And, and if you just think about messaging, we've always had messaging, right? In fact, we've got much better messaging in SMS. SMS is truly cross-platform. It doesn't matter whether you're an iOS or Android. Uh, you can still send a message from one person to the other. The big game changer, and this is the reason why WhatsApp is still not so popular in the US, which is a largely iOS market. The reason why it's so popular in India is because it was when it was introduced, it was the only messaging platform that could efficiently work between both between both major platforms. And so you could, you know, you could get everyone you knew, regardless of what phone they had, regardless of what device they had, on the same platform to be able to talk to you. Mm -hmm. It was free. Well, the thing is, uh, so is uh, uh, SMS, so is iMessage. All of these are free. But what was the benefit of WhatsApp? It was not end-to-end -end encryption. You know, uh, policy, privacy wonks like you and I really love that. But that was not the, the reason why everyone gravitated towards it. Of course, it was end-to-end -end encrypted. But I remember a time before WhatsApp was end-to-end -end encrypted. Mm -hmm. And the big value add of WhatsApp was it was cross-platform. Uh, and that was a big game changer for India. But I, I think the, 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 the point really is that messaging has always been around. We had challenges with cross-platform messaging. Then we added the end-to-end -end encryption layer, all of which has become important and, and really essential for us. And because it started out early, because it, it grew its user base on both major platforms, uh, WhatsApp assumed the position of the big gorilla in the room. And once you're at that level, uh, you only grow. And you know the, the point you made in the introduction is really telling in that uh, even in this mass migration to Signal and Telegram and all the other alternatives, WhatsApp is still growing. Maybe not as fast as it was before, but WhatsApp is still growing. Isn't that uh, just a, a, a telling uh, reminder of uh, you know, how powerful network effects are? So if we were to think ahead, if you let's assume that uh, Signal also grows and becomes a big gorilla or a bigger gorilla. So do you think that given the network effects then, would Signal have the same set of problems to, that WhatsApp is facing today? Absolutely, absolutely. Look, I mean, I, and I think the point is when Signal becomes as big as WhatsApp, at that point in time, Signal will have all the same challenges. Uh, look, you can, um, you can be a neutral pipe until uh, the content that flows through your pipe is um, uh, so important because you know important people use it, uh, or because it reaches so many people that you will be questioned. And at this point in time, Signal is not. And I, I would really like to see what Signal is like when it is at you know the so size of. Push you a little bit further. So what do you have in mind? Like law enforcement backdoors? Look, I, I, so the way I think about this is uh, where do you regulate on the stack, right? Mm. And I think you should think about this as a stack. Uh, the stack is it's a communication stack. Now, in the beginning, right in the beginning, the communication stack was wireline, which means that you had to have a physical wire to your door. That physical wire needed to be connected to everyone you spoke to. And the only way that could happen was through an exchange. So the way you regulate a wireline network is by regulating the exchange. And in the history of telecom, the exchange was largely, I mean, once even that started out in private hands, but very quickly um, with the AT&T uh, Marbell um, demergers. Uh, at that point in time, it became, um, you know, essentially a utility, and you could regulate it. Uh, you go up the stack, and then you layer software on top of it. So, you know, SMS in that sense is layered on top of a packet switch network. So there's no uh, sort of physical uh, network, but the uh, telcos uh, are the ones that you regulate. When you layer on top of that, and this is the over-the-top services of which WhatsApp is a part. Um, once again, you're going up the stack. 
But once the uh, the amount of messages or the amount of communication that passes through a particular layer in the stack becomes so large, that then becomes infrastructure. And then the question is, how do you regulate it? So, I mean, look, right at the bottom of the stack is electricity, right? So you can switch off the electricity. Um, you could regulate with a heavy hand or you, re you could regulate with really fine-grained precision. Uh, and, you know, we would always like regulators to use fine-grained precision because the heavy hand ends up causing more harm uh, than good. So, you know, uh, to, to answer your question, uh, if Signal gets to the stage that WhatsApp is, I would say Signal is getting low down in the stack. Uh, where it may need to get uh, regulated. Um, and that sort of is, is sort of the critical question you have to answer in a technology-based uh, regulation. That's right. And, and, and I think uh, that's really beautifully put, given the fact that we have to think of it as a stack and we have to think about narrowly tailoring our regulations so that we don't over-regulate where we don't need to. But that brings us nicely to the question of what we are regulating for and what are the tools we should use? If we can agree that messaging now is performing some kind of public function, and as I, I had said this in a, in, a, in a talk at one of the law schools about uh, three years back or so, that obviously the nature of the internet has fundamentally changed because with email, you don't even ask a question as to whether you can send an email from a Gmail account to a Hotmail account or an Outlook account now. That question doesn't arise because interoperability is embedded into the way in which email is designed. Whereas that's obviously not the case with messaging services. So when we start thinking about the kinds of regulations, what do you think about mandating interoperability of some kind at this layer of the stack? Yeah, look, I mean, the moment you become classified as uh, infrastructure, at that point in time, I think it is important to start thinking about interoperability. Email had the benefit of being built with interoperable standards. And so it didn't matter, you know, you built clients around the standard um, because, you know, I was literally one of the earliest applications of the internet. Uh, and so they didn't have to worry about acquiring market share. I mean, they acquired the market share of the internet. And if the internet grew, the email uh, market share would grow in lockstep. But all the other technologies, all the other messaging technologies, and if you start with the earliest instant messaging technology, uh, it was something called ICQ, which was a um, you know Israeli company. There's an ICQ looking at strangers and chatting with strangers in Australia. Yeah, yeah, and look, even before that was IRC, and IRC is just built into the internet architecture, right? So it's the internet relay chat. Uh, once again, the IRC was completely open because you have a protocol, you can build clients around, and you can speak to anyone who's on any IRC client. Uh, ICQ was proprietary. And so you had to download the ICQ app and, you know, then all the messaging services followed suit. So, so you know, forget about WhatsApp, but there's been a whole ton of computer-only messaging applications you have. And the only thing that WhatsApp really did was it took messaging and made it uh, mobile uh, enabled. And, you know, you could uh, do messaging on uh, a mobile device, uh, you know, ICQ on the mobile device or MSN Messenger, but it was not uh, put together as natively as WhatsApp was. So, I mean, the, the, the point is that once you become infrastructure, if you are not interoperable, then you're not really infrastructure in the sense that you as, as an essential cog in the wheel uh, are accessible only to those that the private owner of that uh, service allows you uh, access to. And 
we've done it in both ways. As I said, uh, email started out being open, and uh, you know, and 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 therefore you did build clients around it. But telecom in India was not open. Uh, we, it had to be. If you recall the early days of mobile telephony, uh, there was a big fight between mobile and and landline, fixed line telephones, and there were charges that you had to pay to terminate your mobile phone on a landline. And and you know, of course, this was all negotiated by the telcos, but it was not. It was not open in the in the way uh, in which uh, the telephone system is today. Today, you you don't even know where you initiate your call and where it ends. You uh, it, it's just completely seamless, and it doesn't matter that there are many parties in the middle that actually own the infrastructure, maintain it. They are committing to pass on the telephone communication to whoever it is, whether it is someone in their uh, uh, subscriber base or someone else's subscriber base, whether it is in India or outside India. And there are arrangements by which these things happen at a at a commercial uh, commercial basis. So infrastructure eventually goes through this cycle, and I think we're in this in that um, sort of period uh, as far as internet over the top services are concerned. I don't know. I don't know. You well, know. When does sorry to interrupt you there, but when does something become infrastructure in your view? Because this is has always historically been a fairly subjective determination. So. Railroads, for example, as and have been seen as, in your words, infrastructure. But during that Lochner era, there was a lot of pushback against that, saying that no, this is a pure private contract between two parties. You know, net neutrality. Again, you know, you can think about this in some in a similar kind of way that there are obligations on private parties if they are performing a function that is infrastructural. So, when do you think that something becomes infrastructural? I mean, the the crudest way to put it is when the government nationalizes it, right? And the government in India has nationalized things in the past, starting from banks uh, all the way down to all sorts of things, right? But bypassing the question, yeah. Well, well, that is the crudest way in which it happens. The uh, more sophisticated way in which it happens is when you start uh, regulating something, uh, and then you start uh, saying that anyone who operates in this sphere needs to be uh, needs to needs to do so in conformity with specific regulations that are prescribed uh, through law and so you know in india we've got intermediary regulations we've got a whole host of regulations that apply to this particular sector but um, the next level really is when you actually have a dedicated regulator for this and you know this approach of you know creating infrastructure is an approach which very much fits with the capitalist view of how you build out new technology which is you let private enterprise in a fairly unregulated manner take the risk of finding the new technology building the market and you know setting it up once it's crossed a particular threshold both of ubiquity as well as you know maturity of that technology that you know even people who are luddites or who who don't really know the nuts and bolts of it can actually use it at that point in time you start thinking about all of these other things because it's pretty much at that point in time that all the harms start to to, to come up so i guess the answer to your question when exactly does it change is a difficult one because you know in some circumstances it will change just by virtue of the fact that it is so ubiquitous that it reaches so many people that if it fails it can have you know significant consequences the other is when the nature of what uh, this technology does uh, can be so harmful or, or can be harmful to such a large number of people that it is important to actually you know get into regulating it uh, before it causes harm no i think that's two quite clear criteria you know of, of ubiquity and the harm that that 
that might, that might be caused if something were to go wrong. But you are right, as in the real politic would mean that it's, uh, it's infrastructure when the government feels it's too big to fail. So which is why banks became infrastructural in India whenever uh, it was decided that they ought to be nationalized. But that sort of is, leads to an interesting question is that, do you think that regulating say messaging services, because it obviously won't be one WhatsApp, it would be in the class of instant messaging services on mobile as infrastructure, do you see that it might be a disincentive for companies to grow big or would you see it as some kind of natural corrective mechanism? Because it almost seems as if you were to take that capitalist logic forward that you know this is almost like penalizing someone for being very successful. Yeah, and look, we should never do that. And not just for that sector, we should never do it for the economy in its entirety. So the, so, so the point I'm trying to make is that if you are looking to regulate this, certainly choose a fine-grained point surface of attack, right? So, so don't regulate all OTT uh, players because That's OTT as a term is anything which is on top of the internet, on top of the basic internet layer. It would be disastrous if you did that because there are so many applications, so many technologies that are yet to be built and you wouldn't want to just cut them all off. You would look at a narrow subset. You would look at, um, you know, a, and, and if, you, if you describe it, you should describe it in as fine-grained a manner as to apply specifically to what you want and so that you don't have the unintended consequence of wrapping, um, you know, say, say there's a messaging service on the back of a financial, financial information. Why do you want to regulate that, right? Because you want the financial information to you know, all the new financial apps, the fintech apps, uh, to have as many bells and whistles as is required for them uh, to flourish. Now, at some point in time, these fintech apps will become infrastructure. But don't regulate or over-regulate them until they become infrastructure because you will not allow them to grow. Right. And I think that's typically what a problem, what problems of regulation, where they tend to start is that you don't necessarily think very closely about what you're regulating and link it to why you're regulating it. Because like you said, OTT doesn't seem like a category at all for regulation as because there is, there are a whole range of distinct services as from fintech to entertainment to messaging, all of which are OTT. And I think it's the same thing for intermediary. I think it's just a, it's just a term that perhaps has now Oh, is, is not meaningful from a regulatory standpoint. But, but I think there's another, the, another issue that, that, that arises is that from this entire WhatsApp saga, and this is switching tracks a little bit to something that you have uh, spoken of quite a bit, is this issue of consent. Now, at the heart of the WhatsApp issue, and perhaps for me what felt like a bit of a smack in the face, is that consent takes a take it or leave it form. Now, I know that this is a private corporation. I know that it is perfectly entitled by law to do it, but it still feels a little bit like a smack in the face, right? And uh, especially given the fact that this, it's not just true on WhatsApp, but this is the default term on the internet today, right? As in you are supposed to read a, a long form, which is written in legal language as in by, by lawyers, like us and uh, the average person, I was just reading some statistics 
has to spend 76 working days reading all of the digital privacy policies that they agree to in the span of a year amazon's terms and conditions alone reading them out loud takes approximately 9 hours to do so given the fact that consent doesn't seem to be meaningful given the fact that people don't read what they're signing on to and two that consent also operates as a take it or leave it which means that even if you were to read it it really isn't that meaningful if you really want that service how do you think that we should start thinking about making consent on the internet more meaningful or perhaps dispense with it altogether you, you know you know i i've uh, been i've written a lot about dispensing with consent uh, entirely uh, and i know and i know look i i know um it you know i i think eventually we will do that uh, because of just the nature of the internet and look everything that you said is true it feels like a smack in the face but what is the alternative because look you don't have the ability to negotiate there is no there is no way in which we can allow every user of a service that has you know close to a billion people uh, using it to negotiate their own unique flavor of what it is that they want the service to do but sure uh, rahul if i could push you back a little bit on that there are two things that perhaps can be done one is that we can regulate how consent forms are to be written out what should be provided and what needn't be provided and two we can certainly provide that there should be some degree of granularity of consent that if there is information if uber for example doesn't need access to let's say my financial information then they shouldn't get access and that shouldn't be your default option so there are some things that perhaps we can do right uh, let me make- let me push you back a bit on that because these are not things that haven't been done and if you look at gdpr yeah. gdpr has exactly what you're saying so yeah. let's leave our pdp bill out because you know we're still making our law uh, but then let's look to a country a, a, a region very strong region in privacy that has for a long time had these principles that you've articulated uh, make it granular so consent cannot be a take it or leave it uh, it cannot just be a blanket consent it has to be granular in terms of what it is that you're collecting who is going to get the uh, the data how long you're going to keep it all of this has been in the law and let's forget about gdpr which was passed 2 years ago 3 years ago Let, gdpr is based on privacy principles that have been around since the 80s started in the fips in the us and uh, you know migrated to europe we've had regulators work on this but we still have these consent the you know, the, the the method of taking consent which is written into all of our tech companies privacy policies which provide a fair amount of detail but which do not and cannot give you the ability to negotiate what it can do and a lot of the good companies have this uh, and you know look at the big companies they all have granular consent so okay. if you go deep in you can keep switching things off uh, you know you, the thing is that it, it's buried so deep and there are so many layers that most of us don't and we just run with the default feature so the point i'm trying to make orgo is that we are not let's not think about negotiation in the way you and i negotiate when we are doing a contract that's not possible on the internet what we should have is granular consent and most of the big tech companies have granular consent which is that you can uh, allow this feature you can switch this off that is negotiation in internet terms because there is no other way to scale a uh, contracting process if you don't have that now if you get back to your uh, your initial question of the slap in the face that whatsapp's policy privacy requ- uh, policy request sounded like i mean i just feel bad for whatsapp because all of us have have come across this so many times we've uh, 
you know, opened an app in the morning. And before we can do anything, the app will say, you know, across the whole screen, we've got new terms. You have to click this uh, and agree to the terms in order to proceed. And we mindlessly click it. Even you and me, lawyers who are looking at this, do not read it. Why? Because I have to urgently, you know, read that piece of news or whatever it is the app has, and this is in the way. And so I will click and go. WhatsApp, on the other hand, had at that point in time given you a month or more to read it, digest it, understand what was, was happening. And because of that, they got the backlash. They actually got the backlash for being good citizens and giving you the time to think about this. And quite frankly, in a sense, it, it may have backfired on them because the more you think about it, the more you realize that there are alternatives like Signal and people are moving and, and things like that. So it's, and as you said, the, the terms of the privacy policy, the terms that have changed, are really not terms that would affect you and me on a daily basis. In fact, the most critical thing for us is end-to-end -end encryption. That is not broken at all. There is no impact to end-to-end -end encryption. So the fact that this has all come to pass because WhatsApp is being a good citizen and giving you some time to consider when all their brethren on the internet actually just you know, uh, force you to sign immediately, that actually seems like a slap on the face, uh, in a sense. You're absolutely right. As in, I think perhaps as in WhatsApp has got a bit of a slap in the face and has have its users. So perhaps it's a lose-lose situation all around. But I think that gets back to the point that you started with, is that it's caught in this zeitgeist of this time, you know, where tech companies are becoming important. And while you're absolutely right, that consent really hasn't made much headway since the internet began and with those clickbait contracts and so on that we used to regularly sign on to right at the beginning as well, and we still seem to do the same now. But given the fact that the zeitgeist of the time is a, certainly a heightened awareness of the power of tech companies, that they can block the account of the most powerful man in the, in the world, given that this is a moment where people are also thinking more seriously about privacy, most certainly in India, because in the last few years, as in Aadhaar onwards, I think people, we can fairly say people are thinking much more seriously about privacy than, than they did before. How do you see the possibility of privacy enhancing technologies perhaps coming in from the market because you advise a lot of people, you see a lot in the market. How do you see the evolution of, of market-driven approaches to privacy protecting, privacy protecting terms and also maybe simple consent forms? Or as you have also argued, maybe intermediaries who can do this job on someone else's behalf. Yeah, so, so let me just take you through the, um, the, the entire scope of what I, I think we should get to. Uh, I think first we should make it granular, right? And I think granular consent is not easy to do in all contexts, but India is building some really good platforms and technologies to allow granular consent. I've worked a bit on the DEPA framework. DEPA essentially allows you to uh, move data from one silo to another with consent, and that's just specific for that particular movement. Uh, so just think about information that you want to get a loan, you can pull it out of one uh, bank, give it to an NBFC that's going, going to give you a loan, and you just move the data for that, that small purpose alone. That is enabled through the data infrastructure. What this would require is that the bank's privacy policy should not, as it does today, have this overarching consent uh, request, which says that I want to take your consent to do banking services to you, plus to transfer it to whoever I may think I need to transfer it to in the future. They needed to do that before DEPA because it was really difficult for them to get the consent to move it to the NBFC at a later point in time because they don't know when you want a loan. 
So they take it upfront. But with DEPA, we actually can minimize the consent we're taking upfront and take consent as and when we need it using this infrastructure. Right? So that is really powerful, but that's not enough because once you have got this audit trail for the consent, which is the micro consent uh, that the NBFC needs, what you also need is some method by which you can ensure that the NBFC that has received this data only uses it for the purpose that you have given. And you can't code that in, you can't build an infrastructure for that. So that's where my framework of accountability comes in. The point that I argue is that you may give your consent, but if you do not go one step further and actually hold the data recipient, uh, you know, in our, in our terminology, the fiduciary, actually responsible in the way that, his, that that name fiduciary meant to hold them responsible, you're not solving the problem. And the fundamental problem is an information asymmetry. The person who receives the data, even if they receive the data with my consent, have a much better way of knowing what is being and will be done with the data than I will, even though I am the one that has permitted them to do it. And so we have to make the fiduciary more accountable for the harms that they cause to the users. And that's where the third leg of all of this comes in, because you want users still to have the autonomy as to who to select. So whenever I say you don't need consent, I don't mean consent is completely, completely vanishes. I mean, you have to consent to a particular person getting your data. But after that, you hold them accountable for what they do with it. Now, how do I choose which person can get my data? I need some help. And that's why I thought of this concept of a learned intermediary, which is a layer in the uh, entire regulatory infrastructure, which you know ideally would be outsourced to a, to a third party. Think about the way audit firms work today, right? I mean, how do we know that a company is, is good? We can't go in and look at their accounts. We have auditors who do it and we trust them. And it's a, it's a completely third party mechanism. So let's build this cadre of learned intermediaries, people who understand all these uh, you know, data fiduciaries who've received the data. What are their practices? Are they privacy preserving practices? And they publish it somewhere. You know, eventually, I think the PDP bill has got a really, it's the, the, the PDP bill has got hidden gems. And you know, most people are not focusing on the hidden gems. And one of the hidden gems is the trust score, the data trust score. Right. If I can get my learned intermediary cadre to pick up that trust score provision in the PDP bill, and build a trust score for you know, all the NBFCs, all the hospitals, everyone in the ecosystem, eventually we will get you know, AAA rated uh, NBFC to, to which, because you know, people uh, like privacy and uh, privacy is so important, they will just naturally you know, migrate to them and it will become one of the selling factors of, uh, of a service. It sounds like music to my ears, but in your model, who's going to pay these intermediaries? Look, I, you, you're right. That's the weakness, right? Because the you have to align incentives properly. And uh, in order for this to really work, individuals have to pay, as in the data principal has to pay. Because if you allow the data fiduciary to pay the, exactly. uh, the auditor, um, the, the learned intermediary, uh, their incentives are aligned to you know, letting the data fiduciary who's paying the bills off the hook. Well, no. one can say that that's true about chartered accountants today. Right? I was just about to say that, right? Yeah. I was just about to say that. To do that with corporations, that corporations paying chartered accountants because we trust chartered accountants. Now, and also we've got a very heavy stick. There was a chartered accountant that let you know a company um, name the name. We can let Satyam do what it did, and they they suffered the consequences. And as a result of that, one entity uh, going down and one uh, chartered accountant getting affected, or two or three, I don't know how many. Uh, everyone's now much more cautious and much more careful. 
And so that's the mechanism. I mean, let's build uh, mechanisms like this. I think it's impossible to uh, avoid the, the, the data fiduciaries actually picking up some of the tab, you know, because if we don't, then what will happen is that the, the data fiduciary will say, uh, look, you have to pay the learned intermediary, but you know, we will give you a rebate such that you can use it. And then you know, it's through the back door that it's happening. I can't see a way in which we avoid that, but we've got to then focus on how do we make that layer of the regulatory infrastructure uh, suitably uh, independent and robust in the same way that we have done for auditors in the, in, in the corporate sector. Or if individuals really walk the talk on privacy, then maybe individuals of a sizable number will start paying for these services. And, and which is actually the natural way for something like this to evolve because then the incentives Correct. will be aligned. So if you want to read more on this, then Rahul's book, Privacy 3.0, has, has an excellent part that's dedicated to this alternative framework of learned intermediaries. And I strongly suggest that all our listeners pick up the book. Uh, so Rahul, one last question to end this conversation. Let's assume that we are in 2040 and I want to send a message to you. How do you think that I will be able to send this message? Would we be using something like the current services that we use or gaze at a crystal ball and tell us what that might be like? Oh, look, I, I mean, in 2040, messaging is not what we're worrying about. I, I mean, look, I think the, the big challenge for technology right now is how do we get uh, the next you know, 2 billion to, to get on the internet. Uh, we're not going to get them to get on the internet using something as archaic as a keyboard. And messaging today requires a keyboard. We're going to have a completely different set, set of technology. I think, you know, the kids today are already not using the keyboard. They're just sending these short voice messages to each other. We're going to have, uh, if I'm really gazing into the crystal ball, we're going to have a completely different paradigm, not in 2040, we're probably going to have a different paradigm in the next five years. And this is just a different paradigm in communication. So, you know, I think the, uh, it, it, you know, it, I, I, don't, I don't want to sound science fiction right now, but Elon Musk um, has uh, talked about Neuralink. Uh, Neuralink is not so far away. Uh, you can't make uh, words properly, but you can, technology can pick up what's happening in the brain. Uh, there are these sorts of changes that are, that are happening that will, you know, force us to look about this in a, in a very different way. And uh, I, I hate to look as far as 2040, but all I will tell you is this, that in 2040, probably in 2035, there would have been some new technology that has been invented uh, and everyone loved it in 2035. But in 2040, everyone thinks that this new technology is going to bring the world crashing to its, to its, uh, to its feet. And um, 2045, uh, they'll be looking back and saying, oh, why were we making uh, such a big uh, hoopla about nothing? And this has happened to us before. It, it will keep happening to us. It's only people old, you know, old like me who, uh, who think back and remember ICQ and IRC uh, who can put some of this in you know, context for ourselves and not feel that, uh, that anxiety that uh, I think everyone else in the world is feeling right now. That's true. You really have taken me back to ICQ and I remember having long chats with someone who called themselves Eva from Darwin. I had no clue who they were, but <laughs> it was very exciting at the time. So I think at every stage we feel we are in a brave new world. And I think that's going to continue going forward. Thanks very much, Rahul. This was a real pleasure and uh, quite a few thought-provoking uh, ideas there, a lot to chew on, but thanks very much for joining me in this conversation. Thanks, Argo. Thanks for having me. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Time for Clatter, our legal quiz that's a bit tougher than Clat. 
Clearly, last week's question was really tough because we didn't have any right answers. And the question was about a book that inspired Mahatma Gandhi and was about a farm revolt that shook British India. The answer is Neil Darpan by Dinabandhu Mitra, which spoke about the indigo revolt in the 19th century. We had no correct answers, so let's hope for better this time and a question which is a little bit easier. In the 1960s in America, a group of individuals by keen observation of the systems at play devised a method which allowed them to make long distance landline calls for free. This method had a name which around the mid 90s inspired the name of a popular modern form of internet scams. What is this method and what is the internet scam being spoken of? So there are two answers that we want. Do send in your answers to justify at vidhilegalpolicy.in. All right answers stand a chance to get a thousand rupee gift voucher. Thank you very much for tuning in. Our song for today is about the continuing and relentless march of technology, how video killed the radio star. Once again, thanks very much. Adjourn. I heard you on the wireless back in 52. Lying awake intently tuning in on you. If I was young, it didn't stop you coming through. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, follow us on Twitter at Vidhi underscore India for regular updates. We are on SoundCloud and Spotify as Vidhi Center for Legal Policies podcast. You can also listen to us on Google Podcasts or iTunes. Email us at justify at vidhilegalpolicy.in to share your comments and feedback on this episode.